Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson and I'm here today with my co-host Matt Gazarian and Professor Salim Deringil, who is a professor of history uh, here in Beirut, where we're broadcasting today at the Lebanese American University. Um, Professor Deringil will be a familiar figure for many of our listening audience. Um, he's the author of numerous books and articles on late Ottoman history. Um, perhaps I'll mention uh, the books, uh, The Well-Protected Domains, and more recently, uh, Conversion and Apostasy in the Late Ottoman Empire, um, which you know I encourage our readers to check out if they aren't already familiar. So, Professor Deringel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, today, the subject of our podcast is actually going to be a new project of Professor Deringel's. Um, we're hoping to bring in some of his previous uh, very important scholarship into our conversation um, but today we'll be talking about uh, an upcoming film about Ottoman orphanages during World War I, and particularly the orphanage that was um, just up the road at Antura in Lebanon. So, uh, Salim, maybe you could just start out by telling us a little bit about the history of the Antura orphanage and, uh, you know, sort of the scope of the new project. It all began uh, four years ago when I first came to Lebanon, and I knew about uh, this orphanage before, uh, but I didn't realize, you know, how important the place was until I started digging into it. And then I met uh, my friend uh, and and uh, the director of the of the present film, uh, Nigol Bezjian, who is from here and uh, an Armenian from Lebanon, and he's a quite well known uh, documentary filmmaker. And um, we had this idea that uh, I said, why don't we make a, a film about it? And he said, yes, let's do it. So we, so we started digging and digging and digging. And it turned out that, you know, not only did we become very good friends, but we worked very well together. And Nigol, uh, you know, when Nigol gets, gets into something, he really gets into it. And he went and dug up uh, the, the, the descendants of some of the inmates who had been orphans at Antura. So that's very interesting that you call them inmates. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what what kind of orphanage was Antura, what was the context in which it became an orphanage, um, and, and who was sent there, or who ended up there as an orphan? Well, I know inmates is a sort of value-loaded term, but, uh, but Antura wasn't just about just any orphanage. Antura was, uh, in a sense, a pilot project of Jamal Pasha, who was the military governor here for four years, and the aim was to uh, Islamize and Turkify specifically Armenian orphans. And this was during the first. This World was War. during the nineteen. Uh, he was. This, this was during the period that we're covering is nineteen sixteen to nineteen fifteen to nineteen seventeen, more or less, or actually into eighteen because the, the orphanage was still there at the end of the war. There were also some Kurdish children there, Kurdish orphans, which is interesting. And can we ask, why Aintura and why Lebanon? You know, is there a reason that they decided to go ahead with the orphanage, this pilot project, here? Well, uh, Jamal Pasha had this idea that he wanted to start uh, modern schools, as in, um, modeled on French and American, in particular, missionary schools. And it wasn't just uh, Lebanon, it was also in Damascus, it was also in Jerusalem, in this whole area where he had nearly absolute control. Um, Antura was not the only one. 
There was uh, also the the Nazareth, the Nazareth, which was the, the, the college Nazareth, uh, which was for girls, right? But that was for just a school, not an orphanage as such. But the Antura was special in the sense that it was part of this whole project to um, Islamize and Turkify, particularly Armenian orphans whose parents had died or were obviously had been killed during the genocide. Uh, so these were kids who were already very traumatized. They'd seen most of them, in fact, well, practically all of them, had seen their families murdered before their eyes. Uh, they'd suffered hunger. They'd suffered un- incredible uh, amount of su- uh, tribulations. So uh, the idea was to, I mean, as as you probably you as from from your work, you know that there was this idea that a child was a tabula rasa, that you could train an orphan in any way you wanted to make them the sort of human being that the state wanted. Yeah, I come across this idea of the blank slate a lot, uh, or the blank stone. So the idea was to, to, to eradicate any sort of Armenian identity they had uh, and replace it with a Turkish-slash-Islamic identity. And uh, to further that aim, the place was uh, amazing. It was like a very, something out of Charles Dickens. It was a very cruel place. I mean, they were beaten mercilessly if they spoke Armenian. Um, they, they were all sorts of sort of they were inf- uh, they were uh, encouraged to inform on each other. They were told that they were no longer to use their Armenian names. They were given Turkish names, and it was that's why I used the word inmate because it was really sort of it was more like a prison than a, than a humanitarian uh, institution. Of course, that's not not how Jamal presented it to the outside world. Afterwards, you know, he said it was like a humanitarian. I saved their lives. They were going to starve to death and so on. So you mentioned that it wasn't only Armenians, but also Kurds and Kurdish children who were right. brought there. Right. So there's this mission to Turkify, which I understand could be spread evenly across both groups. But how about Islamize? Were these Kurdish groups that weren't considered quite Islamic enough or not the right versions of Islam? Or did that fall mostly on the Armenians? Well, that fell mostly on the Armenians. Now, about the, Kur- the presence of the Kurdish children, there are some gray areas that we still haven't been able to uh, illuminate. One view, the view of my colleague, actually, who um, I should mention right away, the other main narrator in the movie, a well-known uh, historian, uh, Armenian historian, Vahit Ashtian, mm-hmm. who is actually from Beirut, um, and he was the other narrator. So um, his view on that was that these were, Turkey, these were uh, Armenian kids who had, been Ar- uh, who, who had, who had become Kurds in the, in the source of time, and because this did happen. I'm not sure about that, personally. My, uh, the other view that I, I'm slightly closer to is that uh, we now know that there was already uh, in process a, a, a policy of Turkifying Kurds even during the Young Turk period, which became, of course, much more pronounced during the Kemalist era. Um, so that's my guess as to why they were there. Or perhaps also to, to uh, create an atmosphere whereby uh, Muslims and you know, Armenians would be mixed together and sort of, I guess, fraternize and become all Muslims and Turks. But of course, it didn't work like that because the Kurds started beating up on the Armenian kids and the Armenian kids started beating up on the Kurdish kids. But that's the latest story. Right. So it seems like uh, we actually, or you've been able to sort of find out quite a lot about what was going on on a sort of day-to-day basis at the school. Um, Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that process. You know, is this coming from um, missionary documents? Is this coming from Ottoman documents? And and what do we know about what... uh, 
what was going on there on a day to day basis? You know, what was the what was the what did turkification okay. or okay. Islamization one of, look one of like? the major one of the other uh, major uh, issues uh, that made Antura unique was that for a while, for some seven or eight months, the director of the place was the famous Halide Edip, who later became Halide Edip Adwar, right? Halide Edip, uh, as you, everybody knows, became a sort of iconic figure for uh, Turkish nationalism after the war, uh, during the war and after the war, actually. Uh, of course, the other thing she's known for is her somewhat controversial relationship with Mustafa Kemal, but that comes later. At this point, uh, she is very uh, she's in, on very good terms with Jamal Pasha, and he invites her to come and become the director of all of his schools, not just Antura. But she spends specific, something like seven months in Antura during World War One. During World War One, uh, 1916 to 17, I believe the, are the dates. And uh, she gives Antura extensive coverage in her memoirs. She says it was the happiest years of my life, and so on and so forth. And of course, she gives in her memoirs she gives a very positive view of, of what uh, what happened in Antura. And there are also, one has to say, uh, indications from independent sources like Bayard Dodge, who was the director of Syria Protestant College here, who liked her a lot. And he actually said that the conditions for the orphans improved while she was there. So, you know, there's, a, there's, there's something of a, a gray area about her presence there. So I've read uh, in, I believe it was the work of Keith Wattenpah, mm. who talks about, he, may, he draws a comparison between the sort of orphanages and schools that existed in the American West mm. for Native Americans. Boarding schools, right. And what was going on in Ein Tura. Now, when you say that Bayard Dodge actually looked at this uh, orphanage and saw an improvement in conditions, do you think that also there may have been a sort of shared methodology or shared pedagogy where they 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 both, even though they were doing very different things, had similar missions of training, upbringing. How are they the same? I'm How are not they different? sure, because afterwards he also says uh, in his uh, memoirs, Bayard Dodge, uh, that um, when the Turks left, uh, and this is a quote from his memoirs, the, Armenians, the Armenian children asserted their rights and that they became Armenian again, and um, they, they, put, they started wearing crosses again that they'd hidden, and so on. So I don't think he would have been in agreement with the Turkification project. Of course, there are very serious parallels uh, if with uh, this sort of um, education as, as um, forming, the, uh, the sort of turning one group of children, in, uh, one group of human beings into another, the American, uh, in the American Native American boarding schools is one. The Australian Aborigine uh, experience is another. All right. Um, so there's a lot of literature out there on this. I mean, there's even a li- literature on um, similar cases in, um, for instance, in the Netherlands, uh, where people hid Jewish kids from the Nazis. And then when their parents, the ones who did survive the concentration camps or whatever, came back, the kids didn't want to go back to their parents. Because all they knew, the whole all family they knew, was this. And in fact, we have similar cases also in Anatolia, where like a four or five-year-old kid who had been either abducted or sometimes really rescued by a Muslim family didn't want to go back because that's the only family he or she knew. 
right? But that's a different issue. That's not Antura. In Antura, unlike the Ar- Armenian kids who were abducted or stolen or enslaved during the genocide, the kids in Antura, it, there's every indication that they kept their Armenian identity, uh, secret or whatever. Despite the desires of Despite uh, the desires. Jamal Some Pasha of them converted. Um, some of them collaborated. Some of the older boys uh, actually collaborated and became what they called chosh. They became like uh, overseers of the others and really quite cruel overseers. Mm. Uh, and we have some evidence as to circumcision on the part of some of these people. It's unclear as to whether uh, circumcision was a blanket uh, policy for all of the male orphans or not. It seems not. Mm. Uh, and of course, this is this brings to mind the whole thing about what sort of Islamization yeah. are we talking about? I mean, it's the, but they definitely had they had to memorize prayers. They had a hoja, they had a, mm. a, a religious person, a religious instructor. Uh, but definitely Turkification. I mean, they were really severely punished. They were they were bastinado, the the, mm. the, the, the beating the soles of the feet, uh, which is a well very well known, unfortunately, form of torture in Turkey. Yeah, so it was, you know, it was definitely the project. But in the long term, I think uh, it was a failure mm. because, you know, these are children who are not isolated. These are children who are, they keep a group identity. They do, in fact, speak Armenian to each other secretly. Um, whereas a, a child who is isolated in an Islamic environment is much less likely, as makes sense, uh, as you know, uh, is much less likely to keep uh, his or her identity. It makes me uh, think back to some of your previous work about this question of conversion and, you know, what constitutes a a successful Islamization or Turkification and what, you know, um, how the question of the sincerity or the success of a conversion process kind of rises in the 19th century. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background about um, sort of the issue of conversion and how it becomes becomes a question for the Ottoman state um, in the end of the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, as I tried to say in my in my book, in the in the conversion book, uh, the basic problem, the basic question I asked myself when I began that research quite a long time ago now, this was well after, just after I finished the well-protected domains, uh, because there's also a chapter on conversion in that book, as you know. Um, I asked myself the, a, a simple question. I said, what's the difference, or is there a difference, between the process of conversion to Islam and the process of Ridda, leaving Islam, mm. is there anything specific to the 19th century, the period that I study, to this process? And I came up first with the rather halting, and then I became more and more convinced uh, answer, and that is that to, of the answer, and that is that it overlaps with nationalism. It overlaps with a particular kind of nationalism, and that's what we call national revival, movements of national revival, which are like usually small state nationalism. All right, like Hungarian, uh, Serbian, Bulgarian, mm. uh, that sort of that. It's a very, it's a, it's, it tends to be a Balkan thing or East European and Balkan thing. Um, so when it overlaps with that, it does. It's not just a question of uh, a small child or whatever becoming a Muslim, and it's not a big deal. I mean, okay, the community is not happy about it. The local priest says we're losing a soul of fun, but it doesn't become a sort of. Uh, it doesn't become a. A potential, like even an international incident, which it did during the 19th century. So there's a new sort of um, the state is newly interested in the problem of the convert. Uh, oh, definitely. Okay. 
Definitely, definitely. It's it's that's the that's the main difference. Actually, I'm glad you put it that way because it's no longer a local issue. It is now a state level issue and even an international one. If the person in question and many of them ha- were protected by foreign powers, by uh, you know Britain, France, Russia, if you were Orthodox. Right, and it strikes me that you know in the 19th century, this kind of lets us think about the evolution or the development or. Uh, perhaps just the changes in the kind of nature of the power um, and the scope of the Ottoman state, right? That they become interested in new ways in sort of the sincerity of an individual um, conversion in one way or another in the context of, um, you know, 19th century movements of national revival, as you say, and also the sort of onset of um, European presence and European interest in conversion, so how do you fit how do you fit what's going on at Aintura, this sort of Islamization, Turkification project into that history? Is this a new um, development, or is this kind of a continuation of an older practice well, of state it's, interest? Well, it's 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 a, it's a, in a sense it's an intensification, and also it's, a, it's there's also a, a like a quantum leap about the sincerity issue. Uh, you know, the, the 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 Ottoman state wasn't really that concerned about the sincerity of conversions. It's the Quranic thing. You don't look into people's hearts. You know, if they say the Shahada, they say they're Muslims, that's fine by the authorities. But in the case of Antura, that's no longer fine. I mean, in the case of Antura, there, there was definitely, first of all, there was direct violence, continual, continuous force coercion involved, right. right? Which, of course, there isn't supposed to be in supposedly Islamic conversion. Uh, it has to be voluntary, right? So there's no question of this being voluntary in that sort of environment. Right, right. I mean, it just strikes me also that um, the sort of the, the space of the school or the orphanage is also a new kind of space um, for thinking about, you know, what it means to produce a new kind of human or a new kind of child, right? And also to produce a conversion experience or not. So maybe you could also give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, is this is the orphanage itself or this sort of educational orphanage a new innovation of Jamal Pasha or is this part of um, again a longer process of development of state institutions in the late Ottoman period? Sure, I mean it, it begins in the 19th century, really during the Hamidian period, when uh, during the, the Hamidian regime they started he started this uh, uh, this Darul uh, Ajizad, the school for the the orphanage, the famous orphanage, which is still today a functioning school. Um, but this is a somewhat different thing. I mean, there it wasn't. There was uh, in those institutions. Um, there was no desire to actually Islamize, as far as I know. That was very much uh, secondary. It was a question of of saving, and they use the word, of Muslim orphans from being Christianized by missionaries. That's why they they started opening up these state orphanages. Whereas here we have the opposite. Right, we have we have the we have the very real policy and aim of uh, of uh, certainly Turkifying. If if anything, Turkification actually took precedence over Islamization. I mean, the idea was that you couldn't be Turkish without being Muslim, right? Uh, so, but you had to be Turkish first, uh, and yeah. Right. I mean, it's a sort of complicated moment where yeah. you know these two different what we now think of as different kinds of communal belonging are, are overlapping um, in a particular quite, way. Quite, And also, uh, the, these, um, you know, also I should say there's something about the location of the school. Uh, the Jamal Pasha confiscated this very beautiful 
Lazarist uh, College in Antura, which is again it's now reverted back. They were French. The, 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 the Lazarist fathers were French, so they had to leave during the war. Right. And um, so after the war, they, they came back, and it's today the school is, is functioning again as an elite uh, education, uh, as an elite lycée. Indeed, I just read a, a, a very complimentary book about the history of education at Aintura, which didn't mention this interlude, of course, right? Uh, well, actually, it's interesting you should say that because, you know, we were uh, hoping to get some sort of uh, uh, feedback from the actual the people who are still teaching there, but it didn't really happen. But, you know, Nigol actually spoke to some of the uh, present-day educators, and they said, well, we have no problem with the, what it, because it was part of our history, hmm. right? It was part of our history. And they don't actually deny uh, the, the use of the school for this. I mean, it's, they weren't responsible. Right, and they probably uh, also didn't have much choice. They didn't have <laughs> any choice. They didn't have any choice. But also, you'll find in the garden of the uh, Nazareth, the, the, the school the, for, for kids, the younger kids, and it's the Lycée also, here in Gemaize, very, very close to here, actually, where we're sitting, uh, there is a monument uh, where it says, you know, the school, uh, the, it was, this is a, a monument uh, commemorating uh, the people who suffered and died and whatever. And they say that this school was uh, confiscated by Jamal Pasha during the war. Mm. So there, it's actually there. Um, I don't think I, there is such a plaque or something actually saying something like similar in Antura, but I mean, uh, the, the history uh, is known here. The history is known, definitely. I mean, the gentleman who showed us around, uh, Monsieur Jacques, we weren't told his second name, uh, one of the people, he's the archivist of mm-hmm. Antura, and he, of course, knew. I mean, he, he showed us where, the, you know, where everything happened, which statues were pulled down, which statues of saints were destroyed, and so on. So, yeah, sure, they know. Interesting. I mean, I'm always interested to see how um, the sort of uh, more tragic or less uh, less salubrious episodes uh, play in Lebanon, you know, sort of the historical memory here. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Also, you know, um, I'm curious how the story of the orphanage at Aintora gets taken up by the sort of historiographies which have developed, mm. right? I mean, we have a very uh, perhaps polarized historiography about um, the role of people like Jamal Pasha during mm. World War I and the aftermath, and certainly about figures like Halide Adib, mm. right? So uh, I don't know if in your, um, in your research for this film, if you came across or have any thoughts about, you know, how does the story of the Aintura orphanage get taken up um, by people writing later on? Sure, sure. In fact, I'm, I'm now working on an article on, on, the, on Aintura, but I'm trying to situate it in the broader picture of... Uh, Orphans and uh, abducted uh, Armenian children or young women taken as sort of by forced marriage into Islamic households. So I'm trying to make it a broader, put part of a broader picture. Um, and of course, uh, this is very, this is a very delicate issue, particularly memoirs. Now I have three sets of memoirs. Uh, one of them is Merkom Bedrosian, who wrote his memoirs in Armenian, uh, and then they were translated into French. Um, only partially, unfortunately. The other one is um, Harutyun 
Alboyajian. Yeah, I'm not sure about the Harutun, but the second name is Alboyajian. I should really know. And these were students at Antura. These were these were yes. Or these, these, these were these were orphans, <laughs> orphans or inmates, whatever at Antura. Yes. And finally, this has recently been published with a with an introduction by uh, by uh, Professor Watampo, the memoirs of Karnik Panyan, uh, who were published and uh, in, 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 in translated into English. It seems in entirety, and just recently published, um, and that, of course, is the longest uh, account. And there are two other memoirs. There are other memoirs that uh, that uh, David Watenpaul used that I haven't seen because they're only in Ar- they're in Armenian only. Right, and we should say for our listeners that we will publish um, a short bibliography that mentions some of these sources sure, also sure, uh, for people sure, who want to sure, read more. Sure. So you see one kind of story probably presented in the memoirs um, are, and, and sort of, you know, how do those memoirs play into shaping perhaps a, a fragmented historical memory about what happened at Aintura and its similar? Sure. I mean, if you and also when you when you compare the memoirs, for instance, of these uh, these these children with uh, the memoirs of uh, Jamal or the memoirs of, of Halide Edip, Obviously, there's a big difference. I mean, Parnian talks about uh, systematic cruelty, torture, whatever. Um, but there's also a difference between the three memoirs. Nobody makes it out to be some sort of holiday camp, right? But in the, in the memoirs of Bedrosian, you have a more distanced sort of uh, uh, discourse. He's, he's, he's not that angry. Karnik Parnian for obvious reasons, is extremely angry, right? Uh, Alboyajian, again, is, is calmer, right, in his, in his approach. You say for obvious reasons. I mean, if they all three were students or um, orphans at Aintura, what, what are the reasons for the differences that you see? I, I st- I'm, still, I'm still grappling with that. I mean, obviously, I didn't say anything about this in the film because there was, it was not, wasn't directly pertinent. But in, in trying to write this article... And trying to be, you know, as objective as one can as, as about this horrible story, uh, you know, one does notice there are discrepancies in in the discourses of these. At least once, I have to say, these are only uh, 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 memoirs that I have access to, either in French or in English. Uh, so I, I, mean, I can't say because the, first of all, the two, the two, the Bedrosian and the Alboyajian texts are not complete. All right, they're extracts from the Armenian translated extracts, whereas Karnik Panyans is apparently complete. There, there is, and, and, the, and, and of course, it's all also a question of, again, with, as with all memoirs, and this is something I actually teach when I teach my class on memory, historical memory. Um, obviously, uh, you know, this is nothing new for people like yourselves who are historians. It's very important when these things were written. What was the target audience? Uh, what was the political or other position of the person writing them? I mean, for instance, Karnik Panyan uh, became here in Lebanon a very respected and uh, well-known educator. I mean, he was part of he, the, the Gamaran school, the Armenian lycée, by the way, where some of our film was shot. The film, some of the film was shot in the library of the Gamaran because that's where Karnik Panyan went. Um, um, so where he, yeah, I believe he actually started the school, or he had, he was a very important figure. So he was, he's a committed Armenian nationalist, which is perfectly understandable. So his take would be 
as I say, somewhat angry, very understandably so. I mean, these people were practically wiped out, okay? His people were practically wiped out. And I can, you know, I'm the first one to say uh, the famous G word. I have no issue with that, never have had. Um, so uh, I can see that. I'm just curious as to the, the sort of discrepancies in tone and uh, the actual uh, way in which certain key events are portrayed in these three different memoirs. For example, Jamal Pasha's visit to the orphanages, uh, to the orphanage, excuse hmm. me, okay. are portrayed in a very different way in all of these three memoirs. In the two, the Bedrosian and the Alboyojian, uh, these events, the, the event of, the, of, the, of Jamal's visit is almost like a, uh, a holiday, right? Because they get food, they get real food, they mm. get meat. You know, they get soup, they get pilaf, then then they get helva, and you say, of course, these kids are on starvation. It's, it's, right. It's, it's, I mean, it's As Lebanon is starving. The whole of Lebanon is starving. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? uh, so this is a food is a very central part of of this of this of the. Uh, it's a very central uh, component of all of these memoirs, you know, how they got enough to eat, how they didn't get enough to eat, how they had to steal, go out and forage in the countryside mm -hmm. at night. And these memories stay vivid, you know, up to course, the time of, of writing, course, probably. Of course, of course, of course. So Jamal Pasha's visit in these two uh, other memoirs is, is, is a sort of almost like a positive occasion, okay, because they get treated well, they get given food. Whereas in Karnik Panyan, we have a very different take. It's almost as though he, when he has this, he describes the scene where the orphans almost revolted, and 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 uh, at the time of Jamal Pasha's visit, at the time of Jamal okay. Pasha's visit, and he had to flee. That's wow. what he says. He says the orphans repulsed Jamal Pasha, and he had to flee. Now, fine, maybe this did happen. I'm prepared to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt, but you know, I find it somewhat unlikely uh, that it was it, that it occurred mm. quite as he describes it. I mean, with all due respect to 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 the man, you know. Do we have other sources or records beyond the memoirs of Halideh Adib, the memoirs of orphans who were at Ain Tura, or Jamal Pasha's memoirs, records from the orphanage or other... What are the sources well, that we have that's available Well, that's, that's something of a sore point, actually. Um, I tried to find traces of this in the Ottoman archives. And I did find stuff, but I did find some documents. I, I must say, I didn't really have time to d dedicate... The, the, the necessary time to actually keep digging as, as I would normally do because I don't live there anymore. I live here. Okay? But still, um, the things I did come up with were pretty innocuous. I mean, sort of money sent, so many, so many kurush, so many lira, whatever, sent for the upkeep of the place, uh, the, the, the provisioning of the place, uh, and so on. A few things about highly you know her arrival they say like she arrived and then she left and the, there's nothing there's nothing really meaty uh in in those documents it's it's very it's very nondescript the characteristic brevity of the ottoman document well not very <laughs> carry I've, I've seen some documents that make you laugh like hell mm. it's not at all very brief <laughs> so maybe it just takes more digging <laughs> no uh, yeah i mean the, the ottoman documents can be rather opaque you're right about that but on this particular issue i must confess i haven't uh, actually uh, seen I'm not I, I haven't done the, the, the research that I would have liked to have done let, let me put it that way
So can you talk a little bit about the relationship of the history of this orphanage and this project going on in what was then Greater Syria or Belad al-Sham mm. and the broader history of the Armenian genocide in terms of reactions to it afterwards or the way that this history is either incorporated into it or separated from it. We have a very prominent uh, educator in the Ottoman Empire, female educator, Halide Adib, coming oh. to lead this orphanage. And I'm sure that her story is one that can that is perhaps often told, you know, without talking about the implications for Armenians later or vice versa, that the Armenian genocide and its role in sort of inspiring the Turkification or Islamization that went on at these orphanages is sort of told separate from these uh, histories of pedagogy. First of all, uh, the whole Antura thing in Turkey is practically unknown, right? The, the people know about, I mean, the people have done, I mean, only really, you know, people who have focused specifically on orphanages and orphans as a political and social issue, for example, uh, Nazan Maksudyan, Mm-hmm. In her brilliant book uh, that came out recently, uh, focuses on it, and she does mention Antura and so on. But apart from that, it's not mentioned. I mean, the genocide, of course, is a major issue, but this particular orphanage is 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 sort of glossed over. She mentions it in her memoirs, as I said, a particularly happy time in her life mm. uh, when she was here, and so and so on. So, of course, it's a very very positive mention, right? And uh, there's a particularly interesting uh, conversation with Jamal Pasha where she claims one doesn't know because, again, one has to understand when these things were written. She wrote, this, she wrote these in, in 1926 when she was a sort of self-exile in Britain. Anyway, and she has this conversation with Jamal and she says, you know, you are Turkifying and Islamizing these orphans. Mm. Uh, don't you think history will condemn you for this in the in the future hmm. and he supposedly tells her that look i'm just trying to save their lives right uh, otherwise they would starve to death i don't really care uh if they stay muslim in fact when they go back to their people they'll at least be alive now i find this conversation somewhat unlikely hmm. uh to be perfectly honest um so again one you know one uses what one can i mean with memoirs this is always an issue this is always, you know, one has to be careful. Right. I'm curious. I mean, uh, so obviously, you know, for some of um, the memoirists you've discussed, uh, the Aintura orphanage was clearly kind of an offshoot of the Armenian genocide. Um, certainly many of the children who came there were orphaned by the genocide. And then also, um, you know, one can perhaps see a continuity between the sort of reasons the multiple and debated reasons why the genocide might have occurred and then also, um, you know, the sort of project that was happening at Antura for you. I mean, and then obviously, as you say, for Jamal Pasha and Halide Adib, as she reports, you know, it's really just about saving these children's lives. Um, For you, I mean, do you see these as kind of two parts to the same project um, in that, you know, the kind of... uh, that, that this orphanage is really just another piece of the genocide itself? Um, or do you think that there's a more complicated relationship? Well, it's certainly part of it. I mean, as you know, one of the thing, items in the genocide convention is uh, that you're removing, uh, forcing one group of children into another community. I don't remember the exact wording now. It qualifies as genocide. Now, of course, I'm not the only one 
I mean, like Taner Akçam right. has just published a, a, a book in Turkish about this, and I believe he's actually working on an English version on just this as assimilation uh, through uh, orphanages, what have you, as part of the genocidal process. Right. So I'm I'm on I'm with him on that. Um, although there are differences b- between scholars uh, onto the actual nature of the uh, Antura itself. I mean, I, another scholar. Uh, who works on orphanages, and in fact, he actually has worked on Antura, whose work I respect a lot, Hilmar, Hilmar Kaiser. Uh, Hilmar and I differ on many things. I respect his work a great amount. I mean, really, I think he's a good historian. But um, I, I mean, I really think that Antura was like a pilot project, whereas Hilmar doesn't agree with that. He says it's part of a, another, it's part of a whole pro- a pattern of uh, Ottoman orphanages. So, you know, we look, agree to disagree on that one. But uh, I really think that, uh, of course, one has to understand that this whole idea of assimilating through, uh, like we just mentioned, your supposedly tabula rasa thing, this, hap- this continues after the war. Uh, it continues right on, on into the actual Turkish Republic. I mean, Kurdish kids, girls in particular, were taken into these boarding schools and uh, uh, Turkified uh, during the 1930s. So, and of, of, of course, as I say, this is something that went on in, in Australia. It's something that went on, as, as you said, in the American uh, native um, context. And, and, and even, I believe, in Canada, they had yeah. something like that. I think, you know, as someone, I'm working on the history of education, as you know, and uh, I think that this is a really important kind of story to bring out um, because I think often, you know, today we think of education as um, a liberatory force, right? This is something that, uh, you know, allows people to reach their potential and, you know, other sort of liberal discourses about um, the sort of positive impact of education. Uh, and I just saw a study, you know, a few months ago that, you know, across the um, the Arab world, the one thing that everybody agrees on that's good for the future is educating the, your children, right? Sure. But then when you look at the history of, um, you know, particular moments in education and pedagogy, you also see that, you know, in different different times and places, it can have very, um, very different implications for, uh, for children. And that ideas about the power of education, um, what, how, whatever it's conceived as to be, uh, look a lot, look very different when they're invested in different political projects. I completely agree. And I think one of the things that I would really, uh, uh, somebody who should, should look at is, uh, it's, not, it's beyond me because we really need someone who does education, like yourself, the history of, uh, of education. I mean, all of these institutions, um, uh, Université Saint-Joseph, the Syria Protestant College, Robert College in, in Istanbul, uh, missionary schools, wherever, everywhere, uh, were intended to produce a particular kind of human being, right? Ideally, converting them to the religion of the instructors and so on and so forth. Um, let's take, but but the, in the end, sometimes they resulted like really sort of weird hybrid um, um, results, which are actually fascinating. I mean, look at let's take Syria Protestant College, right? It's supposed to train nice pro-American. Uh, Arab and whatever local uh, people, and you have you know you have people like George Abash, right? You know, uh, <laughs> graduated with honors, top of his class, medical school, 1951, right? Right. I mean, someone I happen to admire 
Absolutely. As a, as a Palestinian figure, but you know, and you have various others in, in also in, 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 in Turkey. I mean, the, the Middle East Technical University, which mm-hmm. was established with Carnegie, whatever, American Rockefeller, whatever right. money, ended up being the, the, the stronghold of the Turkish left. Right. And of you course, know. this is what's fascinating about studying education and pedagogy is that so often um, what students take from uh, their experience is not at all indeed, uh, what indeed. you know the sort of masterminds of the process um, want to have happen. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, I mean, George Habash, of course, being a Christian already, right. I mean, one wonders what sort of George Habash we would have had mm. if he'd had like a, a, a traditional... Jesuit, Orthodox, uh, whatever, something. upbringing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's still something, I mean, uh, I think we debate today, you know, how much can we shape people's future by giving them the right kind of education and how much is it sort of out of our control? Um, so maybe it's an opportunity to bring it back to the question of Aintura and ask, you know, you, you mentioned that you tracked down some of the descendants of... Well, I didn't, Nicole did. The, yeah. the film brings in some of the um, the reflections of descendants of those who were orphans there. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, do you know anything about what happened to these children after the war? Where did they go? Um, well, it's very interesting you should ask that question because when we were doing this movie... Um, when Vahe and I uh, and Nicole went up to actually to, to do our shooting in Antura, we did two days of shooting. One day at Antura, actually at the Lazarist College, mm-hmm. and one day at the Gemayan, the, um, uh, the, the Lycée, the Armenian Lycée. Right. Um, and Vahe happened to mention to his mother uh, that, oh, we're doing this. And she said, my, my grocer downstairs, uh, just under our building, his father was at Antura. Right, so uh, you know, so he, we he, they went and talked to the guy, and uh, you know, he said that yes, my father was there, and the first thing I did uh, when I bought a car, uh, my father wanted me to take him there. So uh, the first thing I did with the day I bought my first car, I took my father to the college. Right, so it's, it's that was a pure, you know, pure, pure chance. You know? Yeah, I mean that's one of the joys of doing research that I find in Lebanon, in particular. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it's very small and very intense. Yeah. You know? but so it indicates that some of the students actually stayed in the neighborhood, as it were, or sure. remained in Lebanon. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, uh, the, the, this is definitely the case. Um, of course, one of the things that could be done, and we haven't done is sort of find the alumnus, you know, if you want to use that word. Right. Uh, where they are, you know, what happened to them. Um, because one thing that we haven't been able to find uh, is a register of, uh, of the actual uh, orphans who were taken in. I'm sure they kept the records. I'm sure the Turks kept the records, right? But so far, uh, the college, they say we haven't got it. Right. All right? Uh, and, if, and in the uh, Ottoman sources, as, as, as I say, I haven't seen um, that. Um, uh, it's a question of, you know, because they wanted to efface the Armenian identity of these kids. So, you know, but they would have still, I, I, I strongly suspect they would have still written down somewhere because the Ottomans wrote everything. Down, right, as you know. right, right. Well, so it's uh, clear that it's ripe for, um, for future research. Perhaps. Oh, indeed. Oh, definitely. So one more thing we wanted to ask was, 
why did you choose to represent this history with film? What sort of strengths does the genre of film offer that a traditional academic text might not be able to offer? But also, what are some of the challenges of representing this with a film rather than an academic text? Well, I mean, there's there's also the the, uh, the the there's also the aspect of the happy accident. I happened to meet Nigol right here, and uh, and started the idea of taking off with him because he, that's his job. That's what he does. Sure. Right, and that's my job. I'm a historian. That's what I do. So we put our talents together, put our, you know, put our skills together. Um, of course, the movie, uh, the film, uh, is is evocative because, you know, when you go to the actual location and you, you know, you put, you know, you you have a photograph or a or a shot of me and Vahe walking, uh, in the courtyard of Antura where these kids were sometimes beaten, tortured, whatever, march in military fashion, and so on, right? Where this whole issue went on, um, where this whole business went on. So that, that is actually very moving um, when you think with that, you know... When the you, vision of it. The vision of it. And, of course, uh, also one has to... Uh, there are all sorts of people that um, we should mention uh, in the in this in this process, for example, Misak um, Keleshian, who is an Armenian businessman, philanthropist, who made it his issue to to clean up the actual graveyard. I mean, because in nineteen, I think ninety three, when the uh, when the when the school administration started started digging the foundations for a new building, they discovered mm. this mass grave of of little bones. You wow, know, and it's really quite distressing and they obviously these were bones of the kids who died there a chilling discovery yeah and and then they removed them to a small like grave uh very respectfully removed them and they're now resting where in the in the small graveyard a very very beautiful place very peaceful actually in the school where the um, headmasters the jesuit or rather lazarist as priests were buried Mm. So they're there, and uh, and and Mr. Keleshian very generously uh, paid for mm. the the cleaning up of this place and and the the, the erection of a kachkar uh, and a small statue commemorating uh, the um, the orphans, and it's a very moving place. I mean, a kachkar being a stone carved cross, very Armenian, it's an Armenian, typical it's of like a stella for you know for commemorative. Uh, it's not necessarily a gravestone. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, um, you know, uh, it's nice to hear that there is now sort of a memorial space at Ein Torah at the mm. school itself. Mm. And it also sounds like this film will be a chance for um, people in Lebanon and hopefully elsewhere to sort of reflect on uh, this, the, this complicated episode and its sort of um, chilling legacy. So uh, right. we're very excited to, to see the film. Um, could you tell us, you know, a bit about when will, when will it come out and... Well, uh, it's going to be shown for the first time in Lebanon in uh, the LAU. Um, I don't know the exact date, but it's sometime in the first week of April, this coming April. Great. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep our listeners um, appraised of how they can, how they can see the film um, and also how they can access some of the many materials that we've mentioned. I think what Nigol does, I'm not sure, but I think he... Um, he actually uploads his films. I mean, he has, a, he has a system whereby you can link into his films. I'm not sure about that. Great. I'll have to check. Uh, okay. well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled. 
Uh, so Salim, we'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, we will be uploading a bibliography to our site and also hopefully a link um, to let our listeners know how they can see the film when it comes out in April. Um, we're looking forward to it. And uh, we'd also like to thank the Orient Institute Beirut for hosting our podcast today. They very generously offered us the use of a beautiful conference room. Um, and for those who'd like to find out more about today's episode or other episodes um, that we've mentioned, for example, uh, with Nazan Maksudian um, and related episodes, uh, please visit us on the web at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Um, you can also check out other episodes uh, on the site. We have, for example, an episode with Beth Barron, which also deals with orphans, um, and Lerna Ekmekjoglu, uh, which deals with the, the question of sort of the Armenian community in Istanbul. Um, so we really encourage you to go to the website and also to join us on Facebook um, with comments and questions where you can connect to our other uh, 20,000 followers. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, that's all for this episode. And take care.